This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. And welcome to the human side of healthcare. Steve Love, along with Thomas Miller. You know, COVID-19, we've heard a little bit this week about an uptick, etc. But you know, there are some other things related to COVID-19 we need to focus on. We couldn't have a better person than the president of Baylor Scott & White All Saints Medical Center in Fort Worth, Mike Sanborn. Mike, thanks for being with us. It's a pleasure. I look forward to the discussion today. You know, Mike, we've been really focusing on COVID-19, but prior to COVID-19, people certainly had medical problems, chronic illnesses, and especially dealing with cardiac, those kinds of things. With the COVID-19 concerns, what can you share with our listeners as to why they should not put off or avoid their health care checkups, procedures, or any type of diagnostic test? Well, Steve, that's certainly a good question and something that's very timely. And there's actually been a lot of data coming out recently related to those specific questions and delaying care. But Obviously, to your point, the care, the the health issues that people have that are not COVID-related continue, and people need to continue to focus on their health and do everything they can to, to remain healthy. There was a recent Kaiser survey, and in that survey, it said that 48% of Americans have avoided or delayed medical care because of the COVID-19 concerns, and 11% of those people said that their medical condition had actually worsened. So that's the obvious big concern. If you've got heart disease, if you've got cancer, if you've got other significant problems, even asthma, other things... If you're not seeing a physician when you should be and delaying care because of fears associated with that care, your conditions can actually get much worse. And so that is obviously the last thing we want to see. I think there's other things to think about as well. Uh, A lot of patients across the country take medications for various things, and you always want to monitor your response to medications carefully. I'm actually a pharmacist by training, so it's super important, and I'm very passionate about that. But that's another thing that you ought to be checking in with your doctor fairly regularly about is the medication regimens that you're on and uh, any potential side effects or other challenges. Obviously, you might need refills, that kind of thing, and so that's important. And then I think the other thing that has been shown to be delayed across the country is preventative care. You certainly don't want to avoid, you know, I, I think certainly delays in colonoscopies or other types of Uh, screening procedures are okay for a short period of time, maybe a month or two or three, but you really don't want to go too far beyond that because you want to make sure that you're proactively identifying problems and preventing any potential bigger problems and get those diagnosed as quickly as possible. So those are a few things. There's, There's certainly plenty of other reasons not to delay care. You know, you bring up some excellent points. And Mike, as you were talking and I was thinking about what you're saying, Another thing uh, that just occurred to me, you know, we prepared for the big surge and we went through kind of the peak at the end of April, first part of May. We're kind of hanging in there. We're constant right now. We're uh, we're still dealing with COVID-19, but we certainly aren't having any big surge. But some of the models predict we could. So you don't want to put off care, as you point out, 
And then all of a sudden we have a surge and you have to put it off again. And all of a sudden that one or two months becomes six, eight or 10 months. So thanks for that. That's, that's some good advice. Along those lines, Steve, uh, now if people are, are just avoiding care, it could end up being a significant problem down the road. So now is literally the perfect time because we're past some of the peaks, all the hospitals and physicians' offices are very comfortable dealing with the current situation with the virus prevalence the way it is. And so now is actually the perfect time to begin scheduling care. Excellent point. Well, you know, as, as listeners hear this, Mike, they worry about how are you going to handle me when I come in? So what steps have you and your team taken to prepare for these patients coming in and making sure that they're safe and that their health care needs can now be taken care of? Well, I think hospitals across the country have really, uh, we've learned a lot as this has progressed and have really developed a lot of great systems to keep patients safe. Some of those include just things that, that a lot of industries are doing right now, such as enhanced cleaning protocols. Anything that's high touch in a hospital is cleaned frequently and is cleaned significantly. We're doing a lot more terminal cleaning, they call it, throughout the hospital, where we're doing deep cleans throughout. We're also doing a lot of screening at entry points. So as people come in, just to make sure that people are healthy when they arrive, at the hospital, we're screening them for the CDC-recommended uh, screening characteristics, but also taking temperatures to make sure that they're safe and that our team is safe when they encounter those folks. And, and that's true for even visitors. We've got a limited visitor policy, as do most hospitals across the country right now, just to minimize the overall traffic and minimize the overall potentials for interactions with people that may be uh, carrying the virus. Of course, masks are required. And we're also doing a lot of testing before procedures. And I think not every hospital is, is doing it to the extent that we are, but we're actually testing every single patient before they have a surgery or any other type of procedure within 48 hours prior to that procedure to make sure that they are negative for the virus. And while we've, oh my gosh, we've just at our hospital, we've tested nearly 2,000 patients since this started prior to surgery and other procedures. And the overall positive rate has been very, very low. It's less than 1%, believe it or not. But occasionally we will identify patients that are positive for the virus and then have a discussion with the surgeon or whoever the ordering physician is to see if it might be better to delay care until that patient is actually cleared of the virus. And so those are a handful of things that we're doing. But you know, I think the other things, we've done a lot more touchless registration, and so patients are able to register and do a lot of the registration work at home, and then when they arrive, they answer a few more questions, and so they don't have to touch anything or, or interact with anything that might cause them to be less safe. And then I think the other thing that all hospitals have done, certainly ours has, is we have all of our COVID-positive patients, all the patients that are actually confirmed or um where we have concern that they may have the virus in designated units. And so that's actually safer for those patients. It's better for our staff because they get very comfortable caring for those patients. But it also then uh, is creates a much safer environment for all of our other patients, which is about 95% of our patient population does not have the virus. And so we want to certainly protect them too. And so by having those designated units, it really helps keep everybody in the hospital safe. You know, by uh, the things you described, 
uh, if you're going to have to have a procedure such as surgery, now's probably one of the best times to come and have it done. And indeed, Steve, people are going back, and we're going to be talking about that coming up in our third segment at the bottom of the hour with a group that does over 3,000 knee and hip replacement surgeries per year right here in Fort Worth. We'll cover that in the second half of our show. Right now, you're listening to an interview with Stephen Love and Mike Sanborn, who is the president of Baylor Scott & White All Saints Medical Center in Fort Worth. When we come back, we're going to talk about one of the happiest times in life and how that is being handled in COVID in the hospitals. This entire interview is on our podcast. Check out The Human Side of Healthcare on all the major podcast players. And The Human Side of Healthcare will be right back. This is The Human Side of Healthcare on 1080 KRLD and the Radio.com app where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. And welcome back. You know, Thomas, what's one of the happiest times in people's lives? Uh, The thing that comes to my mind is when you bring a new life into your family. You know, that's great. And can you imagine doing that during COVID-19? More than imagine, my son and his wife had my first grandchild on February 5th. And so we've been right in the middle of it. Well, congratulations. And our listeners now are going to hear from Mike Sanborn related to how you can safely deliver in the COVID-19 environment. You know, it's, it's been interesting to watch our volume, at least as it relates to deliveries. And uh, it's actually higher than it was uh, prior to all this starting. And of course, that has to do with whatever was going on nine months ago. And so it, yeah, we deliver at our facility about 6,000 babies a year, and it's very safe and, and has always been much safer to have a baby in a hospital, of course. And the experience for patients is definitely different because, like we are throughout the hospital, we're limiting the visitor access to one visitor per patient over a 24-hour period. And so that creates some challenges for the new grandma, grandpa, those types of things. And so we've interacted and and created a lot more opportunities to have virtual visits. You know, a lot of people have access to FaceTime, and we're certainly encouraging that, but we've got iPads and other things that we can use for patients so that all of their relatives can have part of that experience as well. We're also not allowing any visitors under the age of 16, and that's simply because in that population, the virus typically is asymptomatic, meaning that the younger patients typically don't have any symptoms whatsoever. So they could be positive for the virus and we wouldn't necessarily know that. And so that's just out of an abundance of caution. And I think the other thing is that we're also testing patients prior to pregnancy because we need to know, first of all, if they're positive for the virus, because then there's also precautions we can take to protect the baby as well. And so that way the, the delivering physician knows very specifically about whether this patient is high risk or not because the number of asymptomatic moms, moms that don't have symptoms, is also quite high and been shown to be fairly high across the United States. Of course, surgical masks are necessary. And then the other thing that we've started to make moms and and future dads more comfortable is a lot of virtual tours of our facilities so they know exactly where to go, how to access the hospital and all of the different requirements. And so We've got a lot of positive feedback about those, too, because I think people and new moms really enjoy being, you know, it's almost like they've been there already prior to the visit. Hi, Mike. This is Thomas Miller. 
so here's a question. Let's just play theoretical here. Let's say, presumptively, that a hospital may, in fact, be the safest place in DFW to be as we resume our lives because dot, dot, dot. What would you say to that? Well, I think that assumption is pretty true, and there's actually some data that I can cite to support it. But to answer the question, it's, first of all, all of the high-touch cleaning and other things that we've talked about, hospitals have been dealing with high-risk infection control issues, everything from the flu to tuberculosis and many, many measles, all kinds of other very high-risk, highly communicable diseases for hundreds of years. And, and certainly we've gotten a lot smarter about that in the last couple of decades and then even smarter with this virus. And so I think of all the entities that you can walk into, whether it's a grocery store or a restaurant or a hardware store, whatever it may be, certainly a hospital is much safer because of the staff training associated with that, the comfort level that our team has with all of the infection control procedures, but then also the testing access that we have to make sure patients are safe, and then ultimately the overall ability for our folks to interview patients and really understand if they're at risk or low risk. And the data that I alluded to is actually quite interesting because we have done a lot of testing of our employees. I think we've tested over 6,000 employees that have been either exposed or in some way interacted with a, a patient that had positive, and our actual conversion rate is less than 1%. And that's actually lower than the testing that's been done in broader populations where they found a 2 to 3% positive rate in, in patients. And so even though our employees are in very, very high-risk situations with confirmed positive patients, they're not having any disease. And so I think that's just an indicator of the fact that a hospital is a very, very safe environment, and it's because we're doing all the things that we have always done to prevent infection, and even more now with the COVID situation that we're in. That is amazing. Wow. What some great information and a such an encouraging statistic, too, to know that this is not coming over the veil to reach your staff. You are doing something right. Absolutely. I was going to ask you, let's say that there is a Sanborn family meeting called for this weekend, <laughs> and you are going to counsel your family, the people that you love and care about the most in the world, what are some musts that would be on the list that you would depart to them based on your knowledge? I would say be aware of your surroundings because throughout anywhere you're going to be going and interacting, there's going to be surfaces that are frequently cleaned, and it could be like a tabletop in a restaurant, obviously probably frequently cleaned, but what about that salt and pepper shaker? What about other things that might be in that restaurant that they might not be cleaning that someone else may have touched? We know that the virus can be spread that way. There's debate about how possible that is, but that is certainly a potential. And that's where the hand washing and hand sanitizing comes in. I think there would definitely, as part of that discussion with my family, be some discussion about that's really, I think, the most important thing we can do. Uh, there's been so many interesting analysis of how many times people touch their face in a minute, in an hour, in a day, and it's a lot, and it's all of us, and there's literally no exceptions to that. And so I think thinking about where your hands go, but then thinking about what you do with your hands. So sanitizing your hands is absolutely critical, and so I think that's an important consideration as well. 
Hey, Thomas, uh, you know, I was just thinking, if you don't mind me interjecting, Mike brought up a good point. Beware of your surroundings. I was talking to a good friend of mine this week, and she and her husband decided they were going to go to an outdoor patio and have lunch at a restaurant. But she brought Clorox wipes with her. And the reason, she watched them clean the table before they sat down, and the waiter used the same rag to clean every table. So really, it was not sanitary at all. So she cleaned the table with her own Clorox wipe. That was good advice. Beware of your surroundings. Yeah, I think observing those types of practices, you know, everybody says they're cleaning, and it kind of goes back to my hospital analogy, we would never do that in a hospital, ever. I mean, we use different wipes on different surfaces, let alone in and out of rooms and things like that. And so a lot of these procedures are very, very new to a lot of businesses. They've just never had to do it or worry about it before. And then they've got to train their staff appropriately. It's complicated. And so it doesn't surprise me that that would happen. And I think carrying your own wipes is certainly a good precaution But more importantly, observe what's going on. Observe how things are being cleaned because that will give you an indication as to how how high risk of an environment that you're in. So two parlays from that. From And again, I'm taking this from the context of that you guys are looking at so much information and have focused your lives basically on the last 90 days of how can we keep this facility and our staff safe. So bringing or extruding that out to the public is such a tremendous benefit. From what you've seen, is it more surface or is it more droplets that we should be more concerned about? Well, I think the CDC has come out fairly recently within the last 10 days to two weeks and really said that droplets are probably the greater concern. Um, There is some things that we know that are quite interesting. So, for example, in that asymptomatic population, the, the people that don't have any symptoms whatsoever, the risk of getting disease from those people is very, very low. And they believe that's true because they're not coughing, they're not sneezing, they're not having any symptoms. And so they're not, you know, spewing the virus out into the air where other people can get it. Now, they're still touching things. They're still moving around and interacting. But for whatever reason, they are not communicating the disease to other people nearly as frequently as people that have symptoms. And so that, I think, gives us some insight as to the fact that I think it is more on the droplet side of things. There were some initial studies that came out in the very beginning about how long the virus can live on certain surfaces. But then those were in ideal conditions. And so when you add sunlight, when you add certainly cleaners and other things like that, it really reduces the risk of a lot of surfaces. And so the CDC came out and really kind of modified some of those surface concerns and said, you know, it probably really is more droplets than it is surface contamination, even though I think we still need to be concerned about both. Mike Sanborn, president of Baylor Scott & White All Saints Medical Center in Fort Worth, thank you again for being on the human side of healthcare. Great information. As you know, during the COVID quarantine period, all elective surgeries in the local hospitals were stopped out of necessity and by order of the governor. Well, now they are back in full force, and we're going to go talk to a couple of orthopedic surgeons in southwest Fort Worth from the Texas Hip and Knee Center and find out some of the latest techniques going on in orthopedic surgery. That's next on the human side of healthcare. 
The DFW Hospital Council, along with our over 90 member hospitals in North Texas, are proud to bring you the human side of healthcare with Council President and CEO Stephen Love and co-host Thomas Miller. And welcome to the human side of healthcare. Steve Love here along with Thomas Miller. And we're going to have a topic today that many of our listeners probably know a little bit about, but we want to get a little more in-depth and unpack this discussion dealing with joint replacements. We couldn't have two better guests. We've got Dr. A.J. Kadambi and Dr. Robert Smith. They are orthopedic surgeons with Texas Hip and Knee Center, a Texas Health Physicians Group practice, and they serve on the medical staff of Texas Health Harris Methodist Hospital Southwest. They also do work at Texas Health Hospital Clearfork. Thank you all for being with us today. Thank you for having us. Certainly a pleasure to be here. So we're going to talk a little bit about joint replacements then and now, kind of discussing how things have changed in 20 years. So let me first throw this question out. What are some of the most impactful advances in surgical techniques over the last 20 years for joint replacement surgery? I think there are really two significant improvements we've seen over the past 20 years. I think first, however, you need to look back at the history of joint replacements. In the late 1970s and early 1980s, joint replacement was something of a salvage operation. It wasn't an operation your neighbor had. It was a surgery really when there were no other options. People were often wheelchair dependent or wheelchair and bed bound. And so the first knee prostheses were simple hinges. The femur was connected to the tibia almost like a simple hinge, like a, with a screw between. And they were very limited goals operations simply to get you up out of bed so you can go to the bathroom by yourself or with assistance. And I think one of the biggest improvements is our refinement of design. We've slowly learned that the knee is a very complex joint and it has rotation front and back like a hinge, but it all has, has rotation side to side, as golfers know. And so our refinement and the understanding of how the knee works, the medical term is kinematics, has been remarkable. It's a much more natural knee. It's a much more athletic knee than we used to have. And I think the second thing is really the durability of the joints. If you came and spoke with me in the early, seven, early 80s, I would say, sir, hopefully we can last 10 years, maybe 15 years. And now I think the implants are much more durable than they've ever been before. It's not unusual for a patient in our practice occasionally to come in 25, 30 years for a follow-up checkup, and their knee is still doing fine. Yeah, 25 years. That's amazing. We don't promise that to everyone, but I think you're seeing improvements. And there's been a lot of stop and start. There's some developments that haven't been as successful as others, but now the durability is clearly improved. So I know there's pain involved in surgery. You know, we've we've talked about that, but in joint replacement pain, how, how do patients' pain differ today than, say, in the past? Well, I think there's been a lot of advances in terms of uh, the manner in which we uh, attack the pain from multiple angles. Uh, Multimodal is the term we use. We have evolved into um, using spinal anesthetics, medicine within the joint uh, that's injected, and that's much akin to, uh, say, a dentist numbing up your mouth. It lasts, uh, you know, for up to a couple of days. And it gets you up out of bed and going rather than waking up with an on-off switch and being in a lot of pain. We also utilize nerve blocks. Our anesthesia colleagues are really good at doing those. So all these things have resulted in um, the patient being able to get up the day of the operation. 
being able to be mobilized a lot quicker, which is uh, shorten the length of stay significantly uh, post after surgery. You know, that's amazing that they can get up the same day because I do remember friends that had joint replacement many years ago, and they were immobile for a while. So that that's amazing. I would also add that I think what's really changed, in addition to using multi-module module techniques, is the fact that our philosophy has changed. Traditionally, we would wait. We would do the surgery, and the nurse or the doctor would wait for the patient to have discomfort, and then we'd react to it. And now, with these newer techniques, we try to preempt the pain using the blocks, using medicine before surgery. We give patients anti-inflammatory medicines and narcotics before surgery with muscle relaxants. They all work together and have a much more effective uh, outcome, but we try to avoid those serious episodes of severe knee discomfort or hip discomfort after surgery. I'd like to echo what Dr. Schmidt talked about in terms of uh, longevity of implants. I think two of the big issues that uh, had to be conquered in the last 20 years include aware of the implants. Uh, and this goes back to chemistry and kind of the molecular structure of the plastics and uh, some of the materials we use to, uh, to put in a hip replacement or knee replacement. The plastics tend to wear out uh, more rapidly back then, which led to failure uh, at an earlier rate. And now with the newer, essentially biochemistry of some of these plastics, the longevity has been uh, brought out to sometimes what we're seeing are 30-year results with well-functioning implants. The second issue is how the implant is fixed to the bone. We used to cement all the implants in place, especially the hips, and much like the grout in your kitchen sink or something like that, they would start chipping and cracking and wearing out, and the implants would loosen. But uh, now we have titanium components where the bone grows into the implants, much like a dental implant. And uh, once it's bonded to the human, pretty much becomes part of you. So uh, that has resolved that problem also, which was the loosening component of uh, how implants would fail. So you don't get those fragments the way you would in the past. Right. You have less wear debris. Your body is, unlike a car engine that has an oil filter, uh, the particles just sit there, and they can result in a kind of a reaction to the little microscopic particles of plastic and cement. When you lessen that, you lessen the biologic response that the patient has to those de- the debris, which can also lead to failure. You know, to our listeners that are listening that may be under the care of a physician and is contemplating joint replacement surgery. In the last few years, there's been more of a trend towards outpatient as opposed to inpatient. Do you want to comment on that or what's triggering more outpatient surgery? I think several factors. I think with the new developments in technology, joint replacement has been open to a different group of patients. It was formerly, as we discussed, a salvage operation. Now these patients are otherwise young and healthy, but they might have an old football injury or an old tennis injury from 20 years earlier and develop secondary arthritis and, and need joint replacement at a younger age. The improvements in technology allow us to do these operations in people who are 40, 50, and early 60 years of age who are fit and active. And so these people benefit from an outpatient procedure because they can stay out of the hospital. It reduces their costs, and they're also in their home. It's a much more suitable operation for a younger, healthier dynamic, people who want to remain active and have no significant heart, lung, or kidney disease going into surgery. As you look in your crystal ball to the next 20 years, do you have any predictions on what we may see related to joint replacements? 
I think we're going to see several different trends. And uh, I'm proud to say I think Texas Health Clear Fork is one of those trends. Um, this is just a specialized hospital just for joint replacement surgery. It's a facility separate and apart from the main hospital building at the THR Southwest campus. And think about it. This is really mirrors an industry trend nationally. If you're leaving after this interview and your transmission breaks, you're probably not going to send it to the nice gentleman down the street who pumps gasoline. You're going to probably send it to a transmission specialist. If you're going to do that for your car, why wouldn't you do that for your knee or hip? At THR Clear Fork, uh, we do approximately 3,500 joint replacements per year. And the nursing staff is specialized to deal with elderly patients who have arthritic problems as well as other medical problems. Their heart might be irregular heartbeats. They might have some dementia. And they can handle these problems because they see them every day. And in the operating room, the nurses are trained. They don't do a gallbladder and then a knee replacement and then a hernia. They do knee replacement, hip replacement, knee replacement, hip replacement. They know the routine. In my own room, if I have to ask for an instrument, I'm usually out of sync. I'm usually at the wrong step. The nurses guide us. And I think you're seeing specialized care. And you'll see this in Fort Worth, but you'll also see this in Dallas. And, and this will be a trend across the country as joint replacement becomes specialized o- over time. Yeah, the uh, predictions are that uh, with the baby boomers aging, that we're going to be doing three or four million of these hip and knee replacements annually. I'm uh, there's going to be a ramp up in terms of the volume. So these specialized type facilities uh, definitely play a role. Uh, when you do the same procedure over and over, it definitely tightens up the bell-shaped curve in terms of your outcomes. Your complication rates are lower. Data has proven this uh, in terms of infection rates. Our infection rates well below half a percent, probably way less than that, which is well below national standards for the hospital industry. Uh, readmission rates, which are uh, what we look at when someone goes home and has to come back into the hospital. Our numbers are very low. Uh, We are uh, very well scrutinized by ourselves, actually. We know our data. And when you do 3,500 joint replacements with seven guys, each guy has got a lot of experience uh, in terms of their careers uh, uh, having done these procedures. That leads to a better product in terms of healthcare. Did you have something you wanted to add, Dr. Smith? In terms of technology, I would just add that I don't think we're going to see a major breakthrough, but I think we're going to simply see a continuation of incremental improvements in design and fixation technology and implant technology and pain control. Uh, Still, if you come to my office, I say this is a great operation. I personally think it's the best operation done because it allows you to get your life back and resume physical activity and maintain an active lifestyle. The knee I give you is still not a normal knee. It's not the one that the Lord gave you. And you have still some restrictions. It causes some discomfort if you kneel. And I wouldn't encourage you to run on a regular basis. And I'm hopeful in our lifetime, the next 20 years, we'll see incremental improvements in in further design uh, in terms of durability and fixation that maybe 15 or 20 years, I can tell you, after six months, you won't feel this knee and go ahead and go for a run for a mile or two and get your heart condition up. Whenever you have two orthopedic surgeons whose group does 3,500 hip and knee replacements per year in front of your microphones, you take advantage of it. And that's exactly what we're going to do. When we come back, we're going to find out why many people say, I wish I had done it sooner. And if you would like to hear this full interview from our guests from the Texas Hip and Knee Center, it's on our podcast, The Human Side of Healthcare. It's on all the major podcast players. Quick break now, more on orthopedic hip and knee replacements when we come back on The Human Side of Healthcare.
We're continuing our conversation on how you can empower yourself to have the best health possible in today's ever-changing healthcare environment. This is The Human Side of Healthcare with DFW Hospital Council President and CEO Stephen Love and co-host Thomas Miller. And welcome back. We're continuing our conversation with Drs. Robert Schmidt and A.J. Kadambi from the Texas Hip and Knee Center in Southwest Fort Worth. Here again is Stephen Love. As I listen to both of you and how you really help people uh, when they have to have joint replacements and, and help them as far as their mobility and things they do, let me ask you both this. When you see the number of patients you see, and we hear about obesity that's in, unfortunately, in Texas and throughout the nation, are there any words of prevention you would talk to patients about to help from maybe having to have a joint replacement? These are one or two things you should try to do. I think exercise definitely has a role in terms of treating osteoarthritis. I mean, the data shows that. And if someone is overweight, weight loss definitely unloads the joints. I think patients have to participate in their own care. You know, we can do technical procedures well, but the overall general health of a, of a patient is very important. And so I do talk to my patients about that. If they're overweight, um, they kind of have to meet me part ways on this. They, they have to kind of change their lifestyle for the better. I think it, it works before the surgery, definitely, in terms of what we call prehabilitation, not rehab or prehab beforehand, optimizing your condition medically so that you have a better outcome. And if you optimize yourself, your risk factors go down. There's a lot of data that shows that people who are morbidly obese have a, up to an eightfold increase in perioperative uh, complications. And that's something, if you're a diligent physician, you're going to tell that type of patient that information so they can make an informed decision. You don't want to withhold care from anybody, but you want them to understand that they need to optimize their situation so the outcome's good. Uh, One message I always stress to my patients is how much weight goes through a knee joint? Well, the average person would think that if you're 200 pounds and you have two legs, 100 pounds of force goes through a single knee joint. But actually, with certain activities such as bending, squatting, and twisting, up to seven or eight times your body weight goes through a single joint. And so the corollary there is if you can just lose 10 pounds, you're not reducing 10 pounds of load through the joint with each step. You're reducing 70 or 80 pounds of of load through each step. So just a small weight loss is significant in improving your outcome if you can commit to it. That is amazing. Gentlemen, Thomas Miller here. I'd like to throw a few questions your way if you don't mind here. So what about non-surgical alternatives? Well, there's several uh, things that can be done initially when you meet a patient. You don't just rush into the surgical option. Uh, There's physical therapy, bracing, anti-inflammatory therapy, medications. Some things have been definitely proven to uh, alter the uh, course of osteoarthritis. Injection therapy, there's uh, biologic-type injections that are now coming up, uh, stem cells, uh, platelet-rich plasma, things that are still on the horizon that haven't been totally researched but are looking promising. There's cortisone therapy, which is a temporary fix. We tend to, with a lot of these modalities, kind of kick the can down the road a ways. Uh, some people are not ready to be, have surgery yet because of their position in their life, uh, events, work, other things that uh, preempt them from having the surgery, uh, you know, joint replacement, or they're not worn out enough in our opinion. So there's a lot of stuff that can be done uh, to uh, buy time, basically. And that's, you know, one of the questions, and again, back to the old model that you talked about in the last segment of 
When is it too early to get a joint replaced? I know if you're 45 and you are in absolute agony and you're sitting there watching the bones grind on each other, yeah, then you've, you've got to address that. But like, is there a target age of when it's optimal? I think it really depends on how much it impacts your life. It, it's a joint decision, excuse the pun, between the patient and the doctor. Yeah, it's no not pun the, intended, right? It's, it's not the doctor telling the patient that they have to have a joint replacement. What the physician is looking for, listening for, are comments that the patient's life is significantly affected. I always ask a patient, gee, if you won the lottery and you were walking on the beach in California, could go for a walk or would your knee hurt? If they say, no, my knee would stop me, that's the time to get a knee replacement. So the technologies, and now you have people up and walking, I guess, as soon as they're barely awake enough to do so, and you, you don't keep them in the hospital as long as it used to be three, four, five days after one of these. What's the rehab like now as far as a time frame and, and what it takes to get back to that level that you're trying to get people back to? Well, you know, my patients always ask me how long is it going to take to get back to normal. And I think uh, probably by three months, you're going to be feeling pretty good. By six months, what you have is what you have. And definitely your knee is matured and healed up by a year. So it's not a short time horizon, uh, say, like with an arthroscopy or something, uh, you know, lesser sort of surgical intervention. But the early part of it is pretty intense. And I tell folks, this is an hour and a half operation. It's six weeks of hard work on your part. And so in the hospital, they're getting therapy the day of the surgery. The, you say, you know, the anesthetic wears off. Well, it's a spinal, so they're not cognitively impaired as much as if you had a general anesthetic. There's a lot less grogginess, a lot less nausea than if you had a general anesthetic. So people are able to get up and walk down the hallway. And I'd say about 80 or to 90% of our folks go home by the, the next day. Our length of stay is like 1.2 days or something of that nature, very short. Next thing is when you're at home, you're not going to have the motivation to probably get in a car and go somewhere every day. So at first we have therapy based at home for a couple of weeks, but most of my patients after that are able to drive a vehicle or ride along and go to an outpatient therapy center where the therapy and the reps are more intense there. And that goes on for about a month, six weeks or longer after the initial homebound period. And then we move on to more generalized exercise, elliptical exercise, bike, things like that. I would imagine, I'm just guessing here, but you you correct me if I'm wrong, that you have so many people come back to you after that process that you just described and say, wow, I wish I had done this sooner. When they consider the pain that they were in and now what they have afterwards, that they are returned back to a, a normal life, they've got to be coming back saying, thank you, thank you. Well, we certainly appreciate a, a patient who's very appreciative uh, and I would echo those comments. I've had any replacement done by my colleague, and uh, I wish I had done it sooner. And after this podcast, I'm going home back to Alito, Texas, and taking my dogs for a three-mile walk. And I couldn't do that three years ago. So um, I enjoy the feedback from patients who are gratified, and I also feel the same sensation myself. I wish I had done it sooner. And to Dr. Schmidt and Dr. Kadambi and all the staff and team out at the Texas Hip and Knee Center, we thank you for great information. You know, Thomas, uh, a lot of people want to help the economy. You know how you can really help the economy? Spend money. Uh, wear a mask. You know, the more we keep <laughs> this COVID-19 under control and wear a mask, businesses can remain open and continue to grow. So if you wear a mask, you're helping the economy. Another thing, Thomas, it's Father's Day, and we certainly wish all the fathers out there a happy Father's Day. But anecdotally, in talking to some of our medical professionals, 
some of the increase in COVID has been in families. People take their guard down around their families. What are you seeing relative to that from your perch? Well, you know, in talking to some of the physicians, they actually have a mother, a father, and like two teenagers in the hospital at the same time, all being treated for COVID-19. So maybe they went out into the community, and when they came back home, they weren't taking some of the precautions they should have. That sounds to me hauntingly like the situation in Italy, where it's spread through these close-knit families, so many people in the same flat or apartment. Is that what's going on here? Well, I won't say it's all of it, but it's some of it. And I think some of it is cultural. And I think some of it is the type of lifestyle people live. But it's just a word of caution. Make sure you wear a mask, social distance, clean, wash your hands, be careful around the house, especially with contacts, so that you keep things as clean as possible. You know, it seems like a shutdown is not going to be another option So it's like, are we going to have to learn to live with this amongst us? And I'm seeing the same thing you and everybody else are seeing is people are being very casual about the way that they're going back to new normal. And that's why I'm saying social distance, wear a mask, wash your hands. If we do all of that, we're going to help stop this virus, number one, from spreading. But number two, businesses can continue to grow and flourish if we all take the proper precautions. All right, and we'll be back with updates, obviously, in our upcoming shows as they warrant. And I know you have your hawk eye on exactly what's going on at the hospitals and what pressure this case increases is putting on the healthcare system. Thank you, Thomas. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Happy Father's Day, everybody. We'll see you next week on the human side of healthcare.